1: Good morning and welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Piotr Krzycki. I'm a professor of history at the University of Maryland in College Park. My guest today is uh, Dr. Stanley Bill from the University of Cambridge. Uh, Welcome to the program.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Uh, Stanley Bill is Associate Professor in Polish Studies and Director of Slavonic Studies at the University of Cambridge. He is also founder and editor-at-large of the news and opinion website Notes from Poland. And today we're talking about his just-published book, Czesław Miłosz's Faith in the Flesh, Body, Belief and Human Identity, which was published by Oxford University Press at the tail end of 2021. And let's get right into it. Uh, So Czesław Miłosz obviously is a familiar name far outside the fields of Eastern European studies or Polish studies um, for his Nobel Prize, but also for uh, the captive mind. I've been I'm not a literary scholar. I've been teaching Miłosz every year almost for for almost 15 years. And he comes up in uh, my courses and my students often come to me and ask what it means to be Polish versus Lithuanian, uh, how to think about Miłosz as an emigre figure, as a prominent public voice on the emergence of totalitarianism after the Second World War. In... Just so if Miłosz's faith in the flesh, we see a different Miwosh. We see, at least as I read the book, uh, the f- transcendental philosopher, not an outright religious thinker. And I, I hesitate to use the word religious. I hope you can talk about that a little bit. But someone clearly focused on the boundaries between the physical world and the metaphysical. Uh, if you could just start out, maybe, Stan, with a few words telling us what led you to this particular lens on Miwosh.
2: Well, I think I was always quite interested in Miłosz as a religious thinker, and there's been quite a lot of work that's been done on Miłosz in that context um, in recent years, particularly in Poland. And I I wanted to include that, and I wanted to follow up on a few lines of my own interest in in, in, in that particular area. But I also wanted to push back against that a little or change the focus somewhat. Um, And in particular, to look at the way in which Miwash is a very concrete, visceral writer concerned with the physical, material things of this world and of the human body, not just concerned with with abstract um, metaphysical questions or political questions. Although what, of course, is most interesting uh, about Miwash to me uh, in this book, for those of you that get the chance to have a look at it, is precisely that those two sides are intertwined in Miwash's thought, that we can't separate the metaphysical questions from the very down-to-earth questions of the human body, and the physical world. Uh, And at the same time, uh, another change of focus that I wanted to affect uh, in this book was to really hone in on Miwash's poetry and, again, to look at the way in which his philosophical commitments are also intertwined with the way in which he writes poems. Now, that might seem like an obvious thing to write a book about a poet that focuses on his poetry, but because Miłosz is is such a big and influential thinker on a whole range of issues, particularly in Poland, there probably has been a tendency, especially in recent years, uh, to ignore the formal dimension of his poems and to focus much more closely on his religious concerns, on the content of the poems uh, rather than their substance. And so I really wanted to also spend quite a lot of time in this book looking at the substance of Mewash's poems and the forms that he uses and how those forms are very closely intertwined with his philosophical concerns and, indeed, the way in which he does philosophy through those forms, through those uh, poetic forms in many cases. So that's how I conceived what I was doing in this project.
1: Well, I think this is a marvelous success on that score. It's just for the those of you who haven't had the, the book in your hands yet in the audience. This is a really fine-grained, but really tightly w- written story, which actually brings these elements to bear. Uh, I, I think it's impossible to divorce the poetics from the philosophy. Uh, certainly, in my mind, now that I've read your book, I wanted to ask uh, if you might offer a little bit of a conceptual primer for uh, for our listeners. a few ideas and I'm, I obviously there's one in particular that that I think needs to be to be highlighted and that's transcendence, although there are several others right excarnation, uh, embodiment, materialism i mean these are words with complex genealogies and they take on a very particular meaning or plural set of meanings in your book i wonder if you could maybe just hold us by the hand for a moment and 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 introduce briefly what you think heuristically the reader needs to know approaching your book
2: well i think the book starts with a historical problem it starts with the problem of what happened in europe and particularly in central and eastern europe in the middle of the 20th century the terrible mass violence that Miłosz and his generation witnessed in Poland in particular, uh, which was of course, you know, one of the major victims uh, of that violence and people living in the second Polish Republic, which was destroyed in the course of that violence, uh, experienced unimaginable things, uh, which we can only remark with uh, terrible distress, um, some of which we can can see again happening uh, in Europe uh, and in the same region after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But this is where the book begins with that historical question and with Miwash's philosophical question that he sees as underlying the historical question of how did this happen? How was this possible in Europe? in the middle of the 20th century. And one of Miwash's answers is that a kind of scientific thinking, a reductive scientific thinking, what he sometimes calls the scientific worldview, what he sometimes calls crass materialism, what he sometimes calls reductive materialism or simply reductionism, Uh, that this way of thinking, a way of thinking that he connects quite closely to Darwin and to what he understands as a biologization of human beings, a connection of human beings uh, with uh, simply the different layers of animal life on the planet, um, in a way that in Mewish's understanding, and of course in the understanding of many other thinkers of the 20th century, and and the nineteenth century before removes human beings from this particular significance that they have in a religious worldview as possessors of souls uh, as beings that are subject to a different that belong to a different moral order in a universe uh, that has an order that is created by uh, an all knowing good god um, and that this kind of understanding of the world in the way that Miwash conceives it, has fallen into insignificance in the middle of the 20th century and is continuing to do so as the 20th century progresses and he cont- as he continues to write um, in the United States uh, after uh, the war. And that this has had historical consequences, that it's not possible to bifurcate so easily that we come out of a science class with an understanding that human beings are animals uh, whose actions can be understood in purely materialistic ways um, and whose deaths don't have a wider moral significance necessarily or no no greater moral significance from a certain purely materialistic or a biological point of view than the the end of any other entity, physical entity. And then on the other hand, uh, walk uh, into a a social setting or a a church or some other kind of environment um, where an entirely competing um, way of understanding the world would remain uh, coherent. And Miłosz seems to understand that this is no longer possible to keep these two different visions, the scientific vision and the moral or religious vision, apart. Uh, And essentially what happened was that reductive ways of understanding the world made certain kinds of radical political visions in the 20th century possible. And he draws particular lines, and he's not the only thinker as well to draw particular lines that connect Hitler for example with uh, particularly simplistic ways of understanding um, Darwinian ideas uh, or he also connects Marxism uh, in a more complex way um, with with ideas of uh, sort of reductive scientism as as he understands it and so what Miwash is ultimately saying is that what has led to this violence is a much wider crisis in European civilization above all, although he does have a tendency to to generalize and to universalize the the European uh, or the Western world or the world that um, takes up the European uh, cultural inheritance uh, to a kind of universal uh, heritage. That's certainly the way he tends to understand things. Um, But nevertheless, this civilizational crisis um, he understands as being much deeper. It's a crisis of values. It's a crisis of uh, of meaning, as the title of one of his uh, important poems, and that this is the crisis that he, therefore, uh, as a poet, is in some way trying to confront or to respond to. Uh, how can one reestablish the value, perhaps above all of the of the human individual, uh, in the face of these? big philosophies of the big political philosophies uh, of the 20th century that have focused on uh, historical processes on on big processes uh, on 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 biological processes as muwach understands and connect he very much connects biology and history nature and history are two sides of the same coin as Miwosh often seems to presented in his poems so he, he's trying to find a solution to 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 that problem of a human being that has been reduced to, to pure materiality to pure physicality to a body uh, that can be destroyed without there being any particular moral consequence to that it's simply material that must be managed um as concentration camps work for instance or, or death camps um or the totalitarian states as, as miwash presents them uh, in some of his writings uh so if if that's the way in which the human being uh, is understood today how can how can that be resisted and and one approach would be to s- turn back to the older ways of seeing uh, to in some way um reestablish those or find new ways of expressing ideas of a of a human being that that has a soul um that transcends um, mere materiality that transcends a merely bodily existence, and Miwosh. There is nostalgia in Miwosh's writing. Uh, there is a uh, a looking back to an earlier era, uh, and a lament uh, for the passing of what he calls in one of his poems second space," um, the idea of a space that transcends the purely uh, material world, be it be it heaven, some other other realm. It's it's, it's not always so clear in Miwosh's poems. That's one way. But that's not entirely satisfactory to him because its he, he takes seriously the discoveries of 19th and 20th century science. He certainly is very far from uh, dismissing them. He sees them uh, as, in inverted commas, true, insofar as, insofar as the, the the claims that they make extend to a particular kind of, of truth, again, in inverted commas. So it's not entirely satisfactory simply to to, to restate Uh, the old understandings. And therefore, he's trying throughout his career in various ways to find different ways to salvage something from this wreckage of 20th century history and what he understands as the the wreckage of a civilization um, that has lost its moorings that's lost its values and above all has lost its valuing of the significance of the individual human being and what i'm arguing in this book is that among other things one of the ways that he finds to 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 get back to that value of the individual paradoxically is by finding something in the body itself, in the material self, that is somehow non-reductive, a non-reductive understanding uh, of what the body has in it and what bodily experience is. And very often we find, therefore, that when Miwosha's poetry is religious or when it is making an appeal uh, to, to, or, or gesturing towards the, the existence of God, uh, or or of heaven, uh, or of some kind of human existence beyond the purely physical. It is very often through ecstatic forms of sensual experience, through a very close encounter with the physicality of the poet himself, um, of individual human beings uh, more generally when he's writing uh, in the abstract. So, it's very hard to talk about these contradictions and paradoxes. And Miwash finds it very hard to talk about. In fact, he says at one point that he spends his whole career grappling with this problem of the body and what the body's relationship is to what is beyond it uh, or or not beyond it. Uh, And this book, in a way, is continuing Miwash's attempts to grapple with that problem um, by looking uh, at those poems in particular. Uh, throughout his career, uh, in which Miwash is addressing uh, the, the, the question of the human body.
1: Well, the point that you've just raised about the contradictions and the contradictory aims and the contradictory faces—I'm I'm thinking about this both in terms of the, the how marvellously you've sketched the context and the larger goals that Miłosz had personally and philosophically, but also about the fine-grained elements of substance and form that you uh, raised a few minutes ago. And uh, I, I would ask, maybe it's a it's a two-part question, but but I think that the two parts are really quite intimately related, and and, and in some sense, maybe help us to to put a a face on this question of how far back Miłoszkin was looking, and what he was looking for. Namely, on the one hand, uh, it seems Gnosticism, uh, neo manichaeanism right, the early Christian quote-unquote heterodoxy or heresy are deeply present throughout uh, both the substance and the forms of Miłosz's poetics. On the other hand, clearly uh, a figure, a writer, a thinker inspired by uh, the literary traditions of his own uh, fellow countrymen. You uh, bring in Jan Kochanovsky, right? So we're talking about longer legacies here, but also more substantially and more immediately, Adam Mickiewicz. uh, On the other hand, William Blake, major Christian heterodox thinker and uh, artistic creative figure in modern European history and and, uh, uh, another figure presenting so many different faces and so many contradictions. I bring up these different examples by way of asking, do you feel in the end that Miwosh was building a kind of creative scaffolding for himself as he was seeking to resolve these contradictions? Or at the end of the day, was this a a personal... I hesitate to use the phrase faith crisis, but, but certainly that was part of it, right? And I, I ask myself this question because sometimes it feels like we're talking about a kind of collective notion of salvation, but he's hesitant and he he hates that at the same time for exactly the reasons you've outlined, because fascism and Marxism went that way in the end. And yet there's something a bit too banal about focusing merely on an ethics rooted in flesh in the everyday because that, too, carries certain risks, as we've seen, you know, the fascism's obsession with the body uh, throughout the 20th century. So uh, if, 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 if I could ask, you know, on the one hand, those influences that I mentioned and on the other, I, I mean, how personal is, is this for him relative to to his deep awareness and understanding whether of the long history of Christianity or you know, per, individual creative influences, whether from Poland or elsewhere
2: Okay that's a that's a big question with so much in it um, and it's a great great set of questions and very difficult ones to answer and ones that I think Miwash himself would have found difficult to answer uh, i think I think it is deeply personal. I don't doubt the sincerity of uh, his crisis and the the way in which that this is uh, both a crisis of faith uh, in the religious sense, but as I've suggested before what he sees as a wider civilizational crisis that is that is therefore beyond him. But I think here it's worth um, raising uh, one of his uh, best-known non-fiction books in English, which is translated as Native Realm. It's Rodzina Europa in Polish. Uh, and this is a kind of biography in a way, but it's not a traditional biography, and I think it's quite uh, characteristic of what Miłosz does because it is a Social biography. So he's he's telling the story of his region, not just of Lithuania or Poland or of Central and Eastern Europe, even, um, but the broader, but but Europe. That's why he calls it sort of n- native Europe and rogina Europa. Um, and he's telling that story through his own story, through his own personal story. Uh, And so, therefore, uh, the personal and the historical and the political um, are all very much linked uh, for Miwash. He sees his own life, or at least the way in which he is going to represent his life, um, as very much reflecting wider phenomena and therefore whether the particular questions that he's grappling with are always very faithful um, representations of you know things that actually happen to him is is perhaps not that relevant I think sometimes you know the line between in his poems for instance the persona of the poems often recognizably Miwash on one level, but on the other level, we need to treat that with a great deal of suspicion and understand that there is a distance between the eye of the poems and Czesław Miwosh, the person. And this is often because he is strategically trying to create. I think, as you suggested before, um, a, a scaffolding, uh, a kind of he's creating a persona through which he can pr- he can approach a range of political, historical, and philosophical and religious. Questions. Now, his own life happens to have been extremely varied uh, and filled with all kinds of events across a very wide sort of geographical um, extent, which means his own life happens to be very rich in experience, which is which allows him to do that very easily. But nevertheless, it is still very uh, very much a, a self-conscious uh, construction, um, and he's he's very much aware of that but as i said at the beginning of of this response i I don't on the other hand doubt the sincerity of his view of the questions that he's trying to respond to that he really does see this as an as a as an existential crisis uh, of of humanity or at least of western civilization and that he as a poet has an important role to play in trying to find a way out of it On the other hand, I don't think he ever feels that he does find the way out. And I think one thing that the book traces, because it just traces one contradiction after another, and there's a sense in which you find he he moves into one solution and finds that to be a dead end. So the example that you raised before of Gnosticism and Manichaeism, or Neo-Manichaeism, as he describes it, is one. So these are these uh, rather odd sort of obscure medieval heresies, um, which were based, very, as, as sort of reconstructs them, uh, very often on a kind of hatred of the flesh and on a heretical uh, denial of what in more orthodox Christianity is a, is a focus on the duality of the human being as both flesh and spirit. Uh, the, the Gnostic myth focuses on the spirit. The human being is a, a spirit from beyond this earth that has been prison imprisoned in this material world that is wholly evil. And in fact, in many of the variants of these myths, it's created by an evil God. And this pure spirit of a human being wants to escape from from this impure world to the beyond where the true good god uh, exists miwish is very drawn to these ideas, and in some ways these ideas he specifically explains at very at various points it can be imagined as the most extreme response to the materialism that I was talking about before right if the problem is a radical materialism that reduces everything to physicality and therefore the metaphysical importance of each individual human being is lost, then the most radical response to that is Gnosticism or is a kind of dualism that therefore treats materiality as entirely and wholly evil as a prison uh, for the otherworldly spark of the human being um, that's been trapped down here. Uh, but but the problem is uh, he he finds that, that way of thinking, and again, it seems this seems to have a personal element. He he seems to um, in well in various of his nonfiction works, he he says that this way of thinking is a way of thinking that in his, in his youth was attractive to him, um, and and that he uh, spent a lot of time uh, reflecting on and he did a lot of reading in these areas, even from his high school um, years, uh, but that he saw it as a kind of dead end. Uh, in in the end, because what it led to was a kind of contempt for what you were referring to before, right? Which is the the everyday world uh, of human beings, including everyday religion, right? Which he therefore saw as a as a as a hypocritical church religion. You have church going folks um, uh, that 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 a young idealistic purist as he describes himself in a certain phase of his youth might dismiss as being you know, hypocritical and not in, in any way sort of seriously committed to the religion as he was but what could happen is that it that this way of thinking would lead to an isolation of that, uh, of the individual seeing himself as this pure spark imprisoned in this horrible material world um, of that individual from the rest of humanity that can then be reduced to precisely the thing that he's trying to escape. So this kind of herd of, of cattle or, or insects, there are a whole range of bestializing metaphors. That he uses, and so what he realizes is that well th- now you 're back to the totalitarian ideology um, f- through, f- through a sort of circuitous route uh, that's, that that ends up back at at what started with materialism, but either way it 's sort of dismissing um, the mass of humanity uh, as a kind of material, singular entity that can be molded and shaped by the all knowing pure. Spark uh, from the other world, um, and he describes that way of thinking—a um, way of thinking that creates a kind of elite that has a, the idea of an, of an elite that has access to a particular kind of knowledge. Of course, among, among the Gnostics, that was a sort of religious knowledge. But he he starts to liken that to um, you know elites in in the Soviet Union, for example. I mean, he makes some odd leaps in his logic. This sort of comparison of of uh, Gnosticism of these sort of ancient dualisms. Uh, with modern, uh, with modern Marxists, for example, um, so these are these are certainly leaps of logic that that can be questioned, um, and it's interesting why he would choose those uh, sort of religious um, ideas uh, in order to shed light, as he understands it, um, on Soviet ideology. But that means well that so that hasn't worked. So that way out of the materialist clinch, as he sees it, uh, turns out uh to be to be just as bad uh or or worse and so then and and here we do see a kind of turn in his career i think there is a, there is a turn away from that gnosticism as he calls it or manichaeism in the middle of his career when when he explicitly I think, decides that he wants to reject that way of thinking, um, which he also sees as, a, as, an, as an arrogant way of thinking that's connected with pride, or what he describes in a religious way as the, as the sin of pride. And therefore he wants to embrace his a humbler kind of existence as a, as a man of the crowd, as he sometimes uh, says, or he sometimes puts this, um, as a bodily being that belongs to this animal herd uh, of humanity, uh, in some way, and that if there's any salvation, it's in this. And so that's when he starts to, I think, to explore um, bodily existence. Now, he's always done so. So in Miosh's career, all of these contradictory trends are present from the beginning to the end, just perhaps in different proportions. Uh, and I think there's a moment in the middle of the career of his career when he starts to explore that uh, very seriously and in and just to conclude th- th- these thoughts in in the religious dimension, that means also a return to the type of religion that he 's previously to types of religion that that he has previously described his contempt for uh, th- the religion of the herd uh, the re- religion as ritual religion as being together with other people in their bodily forms, going through the physical motions of the Catholic ritual in the case of, that, that Mewash is, is most attached to um, as somebody who did Describe himself as a Roman Catholic um, through through much of his uh, his life, and so he turned towards that kind of religion ag- against this sort of purifying uh, religion um, that is more intellectual and abstract uh, in its focus. So we do see this transformation over the course of his career, or at least a performance of that transformation um, in his writing.
1: Thanks very much. Uh, I, I since you brought up the, the the attachment or the extent of his let's call it the, his attachment on the level of identity to Roman Catholicism. I wanted to maybe push you on two points. And one, uh, you do talk about in the book. I, I was hoping maybe for our listeners' benefit, you could say a little bit more. And the other doesn't come up in the book, but I'm allowing myself for a second to put on my hat of a scholar of Roman Catholicism. Uh, and I'm curious what you think. The first has to do with the Eucharist, because when in the context of Roman Catholicism, body, Means something very obvious and has instant uh, theological significance. We don't have to get into the terminology of Christology, but body and blood of Christ. And it seemed to me one thing that I wasn't clear on. I was glad to hear what you said a moment ago. I thought that that really it came through in the book, and it it really it resonates clearly what you said just now about the continuities throughout his career. I'm curious if you see his relationship to thinking about the Eucharist. As a continuity, there's this wonderful lyric you quote from, I remember 1933, Rano, morning, which is obviously at the very beginning of his career. And I'm curious if he, toward the end of his life, would have recognized his own earlier thinking about the body and the blood of Christ in the context of what we've been talking about. And the reason, I mean, this is the second part. Uh, the 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 question I'm going to sort of bring in from from my own uh, field of interest has to do with uh, Thomas Aquinas Thomism, which I know that Miłosz, uh, he, he he read. For example, Jacques Maritain, the French Thomist thinker, quite diligently in the late 1930s. He translated Maritain quite famously for the underground publishing during World War II. And uh, this idea of being cast in the image of God is an echo, I think, of some of what you've said, but it's not the same. And referring to Maritain or to Thomas Aquinas has very different implications within the Christian tradition than referring to Blake or Mitskevich or these uh, heretical or heterodox phenomena within Christianity. So if I can ask you maybe the most mainstream among Christian attachments, right, to the body and blood of Christ. And then uh, to what extent does that maybe shape how he understands the boundaries of his own uh, influences within Catholicism? And here, like I said, I would say Aquinas, Maritain are far more mainstream uh, than most of the figures who come up in the poetics as you present them, entirely convinced, uh, as far as I am. Thank you.
2: Yeah, a really, really good uh, two questions again there. I think one thing that's quite interesting about uh, Mewos' poetry when you're looking at it from a religious point of view is he doesn't say very much about about Christ. Um, and th- there's a question of, of, of why that might be. So th- there are these... Uh, there are these implied references, and I talk quite a lot in the book about about body and blood. You know, so as you say, there is this implication of the Eucharist, and it's quite strong in that early poem. And I talk about that a little bit a little bit in that section. This poem Rano, which is translated for the first time um, in the in the book, um, which very much suggests uh, this ecstatic bodily existence now this is an unusual poem because it also has a has a political stake um, and it's in 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 uh it's in it comes from miwash's early left-wing phase uh, where he's quite specifically grappling uh, with, with some questions of the of working classes of social justice it doesn 't come through in the poems very clearly, but it does here where it 's clear a, a sort of proletarian um, bodily existence that 's quite specific um, in the poem, but then you have these images of of bread. Um, and blood and the sun, which is a, a, a symbol for, for God. I mean that might be a link with with Aquinas as well that's a suggestion that 's made in some interpretations of his wartime uh, of his later wartime uh, cycle of poems, um, the world. But I think the the point to make here would be he doesn't talk explicitly about the Eucharist. And this is something that I looked for because I was obviously interested, um, in this question would fit in with a lot of uh, the, the arguments that I, that I might want to make. And, and he simply doesn't talk about it, uh, very much in his poems. There's some, there's some imagery, um, or even, even in his nonfiction writings, even even in his, uh, religious writings, there are really just brief references. He doesn't talk much about Christ, um, in that sense, um, Although, it must be said, there's a particular, in terms of when he does depict Christ, um, there there is a, a a Roman Catholic priest who's a Miłosz scholar in Poland, uh, who's very critical, actually, of Miłosz's heretical excursions. He's very disapproving of uh, Miłosz's heretical um, interests, um, but, but he's very approving of the, de- of the few depictions of Christ that there are, and he describes them as being quite uh, orthodox in their emphasis on the... Uh, Materiality uh, of this is not a this is not a Gnostic Christ, although there are some early poems um, where that kind of figure uh, comes comes through. Uh, and similarly with, with Aquinas, he talks about reading Aquinas. Um, we, we can find um, the the influence of this theology behind, as I said, in particular the poem uh, The World. Uh, there are some interpretations by Wukash Tishner, for example, that talk about this in, in his book about Miwash and Evil. But I I don't think that that this heritage is something that he emphasizes. Uh, even though it's something that in his life he was very interested in, right? As a thinker, he was very interested, in, and he certainly knew this material very well. As you said, he'd read it very diligently. But I think there is something to this, and I think it is partly strategic. He he even says at a certain point, on on a number of occasions, that he doesn't want to become a religious poet in the limited sense. He doesn't want to become a confessional poet. Um, He doesn't want to become a poet uh, who is identified with Catholic orthodoxy. And one of the reasons that he says quite specifically is because that would be the end of him as a poet. (laughs) Um, And and he describes that purely from the point of view of how he would be perceived um, and how literary uh, fashions work. Uh, So I, I think the interest in in heretical thinkers uh, is is partly strategic, uh, that that he's trying to to push against uh, traditions in part because he thinks that will make him a more interesting writer. (laughs) Um, But secondly, look, I think some of the concerns, as I've said before, are are sincere and I think he's genuinely attracted to uh, unorthodox, uh, to heterodox um, forms of uh, religious thought. And I think he finds them more useful perhaps for poetry as well. It's one thing you know what what one's private religious interests are. it's another uh, what what kinds of materials might might be useful um, as the substance uh, for, for or as the inspiration uh, for poetry. So again, I think that is a kind of um, strategic choice, but it is striking that he simply doesn't talk about that mainstream very much uh, in his poetry, and I think he's quite determined to avoid it.
1: Thanks very much. I'm, I'm going to follow this point just to ask you about how Miłosz has been understood in uh, Poland on this score, if I may. Because there's obviously this is not the focus of your book, but I'm curious if you feel that speaking to either a Polish scholarly or Polish literary audience, he would be recognizable for the choices that you were just explaining because i think from your book it reads perfectly and totally convincingly and i assume that the book is going to be translated into polish Uh, have you thought about how those particular points will come across
2: i I think that is the way that miłosz is understood in poland i think he is associated with with uh, unorthodox uh, forms of religion there, there are also simplistic ways of looking at Miwash and often quite hostile ways of looking at Miłosz uh, as somebody who was, of course, a heretic in everything. Uh, he was a traitor in the way that he's sometimes understood by some on the right uh, in Poland because of the fact that he did spend uh, six years uh, in, this, in the service of the post-war uh, communist state as a representative uh, of that state in the United States, in particular before he defected in France in 1951. That's something for which some in Poland uh, haven't forgiven him. Um, Similarly, he's viewed that way because of his identification quite frequently with the Lithuanian dimension of his identity and certainly uh, the way in which he is always keen to define himself against the nationalist understanding of Polish identity, and indeed, uh, against what he would understand as the Polishness of the center of Warsaw and (laughs) Kraków. He's a Pole of the margins of Lithuania, and that's very important to him. But I I think that's also partly a strategic choice. Uh, that he wants to define himself. He, in some ways, Miłosz was a born contrarian. On on one level, I think it, that there's partly a question of personality. You know, he's always seeking to define himself against dominant traditions in which he finds himself. So when he's in when he's in Poland. He can be seen as an iconoclastic uh, radical who's critical of, uh, of national ideas, who's critical of, of Catholic religion in its uh, orthodox forms. Uh, when he's in Berkeley in the 1960s, he can be a, a stern conservative uh, defining himself um, against uh, the radical movements that he finds around uh, around him around himself there. so, so in that way he, he's often defining himself against. And I always have the feeling that, that that is where he feels he can get creative traction uh, in a way. So, in that sense, I, I don't think that understanding of Miłosz as a, as a thinker who doesn't identify himself with the Catholic mainstream uh, would be an unexpected view in Poland.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
1: The contrarianism that you were just describing, I, I'm curious, there's a very important chapter in your book, obviously, about gender uh, and gender's role in in the poetics of transcendence and, and, and materiality for Miłosz. Uh, and in some ways, he comes off deeply conservative, but there are... Uh, very clear tensions that I think you point out very convincingly. I wonder if you could just talk about that for a moment, because I had that in the back of my mind also when thinking about how Miłosz is received. In some ways, uh, that his, his understanding—I think you talk about the uh, the feminine quality of embodiment as opposed to the masculine quality of rationalism—rings uh, very. Badly, if I may put it that way, for mainstream 21st century ears, at least in the anglophone scholarly world, I'm 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 not asking you to to necessarily comment from today's perspective, but but um, but the contrary was that contrarianism, or do you feel like he genuinely felt that that was a real commitment within his poetics to uh, this uh, notion of of the the a more a more a more conservative approach to gender. <laughs>
2: I think his I think his conservative approach to gender, and there's no, there's absolutely no question about that. Uh, and there are certainly times in his life where you could describe that as misogyny. And in fact, he describes it of himself as misogyn, as a, as a sort of misogynistic. Uh, tendency. Um, he's dismissive uh, of, uh, quite contemptuously, of feminism in the 1990s, which the 1990s is a very important uh, time for Polish feminism, for example. Uh, and there's a poem that I talk about, which is addressed to the feminists, which again is quite contemptuous towards them, which it's, it's notable was not translated into English. And, uh, that that seems to me like his recognition like there are certain things that he could get away with perhaps in Poland in the 1990s uh, in writing about women about gender and about feminism that he would not would not have been acceptable to a to a, to a US audience uh, at that at that time uh, that's the only reason I can see why that poem wasn't translated so uh, look I think he is uh, deeply conservative in in his view on gender and I think there's a lot more that can be written about miłosz and women and in fact I have to say that there was was a certain point in time at which the book I wanted to write was about Miwash and women. And in the end, I have a very substantial chapter. And I and I think it's, I mean, I'm interested to hear you uh, highlight it because I actually think it's the most important and interesting chapter in the book from my own point of view uh, about how Miwash is using what in many ways are the oldest gender stereotypes and dichotomies in Western civilization. So these dichotomies are not really challenged ever in Miłosz's writing, and they are very often structuring symbols for the ways in which he understands uh, religious questions and philosophical questions, Uh, and they're right, right through his poetry. So these are the identifications that you were talking about before, so identifications of... The masculine with mind, with culture, with reflection, with thought, with uh, transcendence and the association of the feminine with body, with nature. With instinct. These are, of course, very, very familiar um, dichotomies, and they're dichotomies that uh, feminist thought has, uh, of course, engaged with uh, very closely in a in critique of them. And that's partly what I do in this chapter. But what I also find is quite interesting that Miwash is doing at various points in various uh, poems is that he is doing what a certain strain of feminist thinker also does and the feminist thinkers that i talk about are yulia kristeva lucy rigorey and elizabeth uh, gross and this is to take those dichotomies and at least to a certain extent strategically embrace them but invert their valence right to so to to reclaim underst- what the feminine is right to 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 say that there is something um, that can be defined uh, as as feminine styles of thinking or womanly styles of thinking, this is something that certain kinds of uh, feminist thinkers are interested in doing. Now, obviously, there are other feminist thinkers that reject that uh, entirely. Right, so that's a that's a debate uh, within feminist thought, and it's a debate that's moved on. Quite a long, quite away from from when Miwash was was writing, but there are moments, and I, I'm I'm hesitant. I don't want to push this too far. I'm not trying to say that Miwash is a feminist thinker in some dimension. He's very very far from it, but there are moments where he does preserve that dichotomy while inverting its valence. So he places feminine body, instinct, um, connection with nature intuition above uh, masculine, reason, mind, culture, etc., and identifies himself, in particular as a poet, with the feminine side. So he says that as a, as a poet... I am a woman, right? So the, the, my poetry is with, with my feminine side. He's drawing here on the sort of Jungian uh, ideas to some, to some extent. He even talks about the anima, the feminine anima, um, which, which is the source of his poetry uh, as he understands it. And so he sees himself as having both masculine and feminine uh, dimensions, Now, very often, the feminine dimension is threatening in Miłosz's poems, and I make make this very clear. It's it's a destructive element um, that is opposed to to civilization and culture and and, and thought and rationality, and that appears as dangerous. But there are other moments where that is productive uh, and it's the source of creativity and it's the source of poetry and it's what brings human beings to a closer connection with their fundamental identity, their bodies, as, as Miwosh understands it. So it's a very sort of problematic set of ideas, as you suggested at, at the beginning. And, and these dichotomies, of course, um, you know, have, been, have been the subject of, of, of critique uh, for, for many, many decades, uh, and, and Miwosh continues to reproduce them uncritically. Um, and and very often there are ideas that are verging on on misogyny uh, in in his poems and and in his writings. But I find these moments where almost in spite of himself, there's something that he's in, he's doing that's in parallel with it with a particular strain of feminist thinking that I talk about as as a, the kind of strategically essentializing strain in feminist thinking that that, that does sort of. It, uh, except at least um, provisionally, as a starting point, uh, certain kinds of essentialized understandings of of man and woman, of masculine and feminine, but in order to to invert their valence um and to and ultimately to critique them now Miwash never takes the additional step <laughs> to to critiquing those dichotomies but he does invert the valence uh, and that's something that i talk about in in that chapter uh which t- to me was the most interesting to write and i i would love to see more, and I do want that chapter to be a feminist critique of Miwash's poetry uh, on one level, and it certainly is. And bringing in some of the thinkers that I talked about before, using Kristeva and Irigaray and and Gross in particular um, as tools um, to to deliver a critique of, of a feminist critique of Miosha's, uh poetry. But I think there's a lot more that can be done, um, and and I would and I would like to see more uh, work done on mush and women and women um and and more feminist criticism uh, of of Miwash and that which already exists um I, I draw on gratefully um in in my chapter uh, but but I think there's more that can be done in this area.
1: Uh, it's such a rich chapter. i do want to push one follow up on uh, uh, to what you said, which is to go back to the the framing with which we started about um, religion and also these uh, various conflictual impulses with which Miwash is wrestling because I mean, I, I was using the word conservative before you used it as well. And, on the, on, on the other hand, from the standpoint of conservative Catholicism, one would look for a Marian role for women, and one would think also about Mary, uh, the virgin, uh, sort of this virginal quality in relation to Christ. But I, I'm considering the relative absence of Christ from his poetics, and uh, Mary in that context, it seems that there is ground potentially for an escape uh, from a kind of... Uh, Reification of old patterns of understanding uh, woman as, let's say, institutional Catholicism would put it. Even though his instincts seem to be often to uh, identify femininity. Precisely as you've described at length, beautifully in the chapter, with uh, the more conservative cultural norms and constructs. I, if I can just put a fine point on it, do could, you could, feel could, like? Yeah, yeah I'm I, 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 sorry. Go ahead, no, Sam. Sorry, ahead. you
2: should ask your question. But what you've just said is uh, has triggered something that I need to add in, in fairness to Miyoshi. But but go go ahead with your question. I want it. to hear what you have to say, please. Well, I, I was just going to say that I, I think he uses these ideas as convenient poetic symbols. And and the reason he uses them is to some degree because they're so deeply embedded embedded in uh, in the culture, in poetry that comes before him in the Bible, whereas in his life it's a little bit more complex. I mean, one thing that's striking in his life is is uh, that you know he has a series of of relationships uh, with women that again intertwine this sort of intellectual uh, admiration. Uh, with with physical relationships so you know, relationship with philosopher um, Jean Hirsch uh, for example, or uh, a later um, affair in fact that he had uh, in the 1980s uh, with a journalist which was you know clearly um, it, and, and sort of intellectual relationship as much as much as a physical uh, relationship so there, there is it's not quite as as, as simple um, in, in the way that Miwash looks at. At, at women um, but I think that he's using a particular set of symbols from uh, poetic history and particularly from from uh, from scripture that uh, carry a lot of resonance to convey some of the ideas that he wants to uh, convey so I, but I just think that's worth pointing out um, in in, f- in fairness uh, to Miwash that um, he he had a lot of um, intellectual partners uh, who were, Extremely strong women thinkers who were very influential on him. Uh, Simone Weil is another, and he expresses uh, his sort of admiration for these thinkers and puts them at the center of some of, uh, at, of, some of his of some of his ideas.
1: That was exactly what it, where I was going to take the question. In fact, in some sense, okay. So I what,
2: anticipated in some way. Yeah.
1: Well, yes. That's it. Thank you. Uh, really. Where would you feel that his his commitments uh, on gender follow his commitments on religion, or the other way around, or go hand in hand? And it seems like to say, it, it depends uh, on 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 the given context within his poetics.
2: Yes, and and I think again it might you know that aspect of contrarianism uh, might arise that he's able to be he's able to be a conservative um, when he feels that he's pushing back uh, on ideas that are dominant around him, as he may have felt in um, the 80s in California, for example, um, and therefore to to intentionally amplify (laughs) some of those uh, more atavistic uh, dimensions to to his ideas uh, on, on gender. Uh, but I, I think, look, in very simple terms, it, he is probably a he's a product of of uh, his time and and a quite sort of and he's very much. Uh, I don't think he changes those sort of quite traditional ideas on on relations uh, between men and women. Um, but he certainly has a, a lot of important uh, women intellectual partners um, across his uh, across his career.
1: We are approaching the final minutes of, of our conversation. I wanted to switch gears for just a moment and talk. It's, it's a book that shows up at, at, at length and quite often in uh, Teslaf Miosh's Faith in the Flesh, and that's uh, the Mountains of Parnassus, right? Unfinished and unpublished in Miosh's lifetime, translated into English by you. So I wanted to ask a little bit about, uh, first off, why that book plays such a role in in the analysis you're doing and obviously by way of asking how you would recommend to our listeners that they consider or look to the mountains of Parnassus as part of the larger whole of Miwosha's writings.
2: I mean, the reason the book uh, comes in Uh, and it's the reason that the poem we were talking about before was an untranslated poem, for example, um, was that I was trying... There have been a lot of books written about Miłosz, perhaps not so many in English, so I was conscious of that, but very many in Polish. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was have a mixture of material that would be very familiar uh, to readers and to MIWASH specialists um, with material that has not been considered in as much detail. So to keep the book fresh um, in its analysis. So that was one reason to choose a text that is ultimately quite an obscure one, um, which, yeah, it comes up in passing You know here and there and but but it's um you know it's not extremely important in the in the in the book but it does it does come up um but another reason is because i although this book i would not recommend somebody who's not a you know an established reader of miwash to go out and buy the mountains of parnassus which is this unfinished science fiction novel experiment that he was writing at the end of the 1960s um, that was published in poland um, it's his posthumous publication uh, and then was published uh, in English a few years ago it's certainly not his best work it has some good sections to it um, but as a work of literature it's probably not going to be satis- as satisfying to most readers as as many of his other works and I certainly wouldn't recommend it as a place to begin uh, with Miwash however I think that the his act of grappling with this strange genre of science fiction uh, allowed him to crystallized or forced him in a way uh, or perhaps that was what he was trying, that was the reason he was engaging in this this experiment uh, to express some of these the broader themes that underlie much of his work I found found in 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 a clearer way than it come through that then comes through in some of the other works. Perhaps in part because it is a slightly weaker work, so it ends up being more programmatic, um, and and he's sort of telegraphing some of the ideas much more clearly than he would in his subtler works. So I found that there were certain points in the book where it was very helpful. While the the main analysis might have been devoted to those. Um, more important works from an artistic point of view. Sometimes the underlying themes that were coming through those works that were echoed in the Mountains of Parnassus uh, could be could be more easily um, shown and demonstrated uh, by drawing a comparison uh, with with that sort of lesser work. Uh, so I, I found that 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 was a useful tool uh, at a couple of moments uh, in the book because he he uses the the some of the conventions of science fiction to treat these same problems of of bodily existence so you you have a character who's kind of like a science fiction you have characters who are like science fiction gnostics they're able to they're able to abstract themselves from their physical existence by new technologies uh, that allow them not to age uh, and then because they travel um, vast distances across space, because of the effects of relativity, when they return to Earth, the people they know have aged and have been subject to these physical processes of time, whereas they are—they remain this pure, unchanged elite. So this was uh, Miwash in a way representing that problem that at this point in his career he's really grappling with. This is the turning point that I talked about before where he's beginning to reject these Gnostic ideas and decide that what he needs to do as a poet and perhaps as a person is to embrace um, the fate that he shares with all other human beings, which is that he's a finite bodily being, uh, and that's something that one of the characters in this fine, in this uh, science fiction um, novel, unfinished science fiction novel, um, has to also face. And I, I felt that it came through the point that I was making with a particular uh, clarity in that work. And so that's why I chose it. While it's also something a, a, a little bit uh, fresh, and so putting that alongside some of the more familiar works, some of the greater works artistically speaking, um, I found was striking.
1: Well, your point about his realization of, of being a finite being actually leads me to my last question about Miłosz, which is that old age is highlighted early on in your book as a moment of real turning point. It seems that in general, your uh, your account of Miłosz is one of fairly uh, stable continuity in terms of a lot of the trends, although you mentioned the turning point in the middle of his career. but. numerous realizations about the body in old age. And you talk about his horror and revulsion at nursing homes and the experience of seeing what happens, obviously, to his uh, spouses, to uh, friends. I I wonder if those realizations that uh, come to Mewos in his old age... Change any of the lessons that, or the the characterizations that we've been discussing. Uh, how how would you assess Mewosh in the final years of his life relative to uh, all the various trends we've been describing?
2: I, I think in old age it's very difficult, or it's much more difficult, uh, to embrace this ecstatic vision uh, of of a of a bodily identity. Uh, through which if at all one is connected with the divine um, as the body is uh, deteriorating and 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 subject to illness and Miwash was was very healthy until a very old age he lived a, and he lived a long life and and he expressed his gratefulness and astonishment um, at that fact and he did watch those around him suffering and dying before before he died but uh, but I think in the in the late phase, One certainly does feel that he returns to some extent to this very powerful sense, which never departs from his poetry, of the distinction between or the the sense that the self as consciousness always has of its distinctness from its body, which is a kind of, on some level, that these, this is the dual reality that Miwash is trying to grapple with and capture in his poetry. That on the one hand, we understand that we are our bodies, that our bodies are us, and that our minds are part of our bodies and are also physical and that we don't exist without our bodies. But on the other hand, there's a part of us as Miwash uh, observes on many occasions that feels separate from our bodies and you one can look at one's body in the mirror uh, as a kind of alien thing or as a, as, as a uh, and as a thing that increasingly as one gets older um, has things wrong with it um, or is uh, that and as Miwash describes his body on, on one occasion, as a as an old car um, that has various things breaking down off it, but is you know continuing continuing to go, so so that sense in in the late phase of his poetry, uh, I, I think is quite powerful. Again, uh, there is almost a return, not so much to the Gnostic ideas, although the Gnostic ideas come back too. They they never disappear from his poetry, even when there's this turn, and that's why I say. Uh, I do focus on the continuity across his career because I do see that these paradoxes and these conflicting ideas are there from the beginning to the end, but they do exist in different proportions at different times in his career. And therefore, I do pay attention to the different phases as well. But the book is structured according to themes rather than chronology because I, you can find those themes as across across his career. Um, but But in old age, I think there is, again this sense of distance from the body and this sense of what is this mysterious eye that feels its separation from its own physical manifestation.
1: Thanks very much. Uh, as we wrap up, I want to turn for a moment to, uh, your work as a, well, I would say major figure in the field of Polish studies globally, uh, partly for, for, um, the notes of po- notes from Poland uh, site that you've organized and I, I notice your title now is editor- at-large but I know it's very much your initiative uh, in, in so many ways from the origins and also to talk a little bit about Polish studies at Cambridge which I know is really a model in so many ways for what Polish studies could look like and I've heard you speak on webinars before about Polish studies but I'm Given that this is a, a, a podcast that's somewhat crossing the boundaries between Eastern European studies and Polish studies, I'm curious if you could talk just for a moment about what your current interests are and what you think is most important right now. Obviously, you yourself have referenced already the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Eastern Europe is on everyone's minds one way or another. Uh, so what, what are you working on? And is it mostly service oriented right now?
2: Um, First of all, I, I uh, don't want to take credit for what uh, my colleagues for the Notes from Poland are doing. So it is true that I'm one of the founders and I still have a role to play. Um, and I uh, mean, I'm, in, I'm the, the chair of the board of the foundation that runs Notes from Poland. Uh, but the people who are really responsible for its uh, success and for the content that's created are um, Dan Tillis, who's the editor in chief, um, and, and the rest of the editorial team who are based in Poland. Um, and so I have a kind of uh, Oversight role, and I'm still, you know, very strongly engaged. But credit should—it's very important to to give the credit where it's where it's due for the for the real success of notes from Poland, which I'm very proud of. But it's the work of others that that has created that uh, more than my more than my own directly. Um, In terms of what I'm working on now and what I think about Polish studies, well, I mean, this is a question that I'd be very interested to talk about with you. We could almost do a we we should do a separate podcast, which is about the future of Polish studies. But my own work is hopping across disciplines, right? right now. So I have uh, taken a very strong interest because of my work in Notes from Poland in contemporary Polish politics. Um, I have a sort of background in the distant past in political science and in some ways I've returned to that. Um, so I've been I've published a couple of articles now about uh, the current government in, in Poland and the sources of its success. Uh, and my next book project will be a collaborative uh, monograph written with Ben Stanley who's a political scientist based in Warsaw. Um, so we're doing that with Stanford University Press uh, at the moment. The, the, uh, the provisional title is Good Change, Poland's Revolt Against the Liberal Order. Um, but uh, yeah, that the, the title I'm sure will change as, as the circumstances are changing uh, by, the, by the day and the general context in which we have to place this story that we're going to be telling about how law and justice, peace um, came to power, uh, their, their successes, um, the sources of their uh, popularity, uh, and putting that in a in a wider context uh, of various evolutions of democracy um, uh, across, across uh, Europe in particular, uh, but with some references to the United States as well. So that's what I'm working on now. So it's sort of really this interdisciplinary jump, which I think um, reflects in some way how I have tended to perceive Polish studies, uh, which is that it should be interdisciplinary uh, and that in a Field that has traditionally been smaller, uh, historians and literary scholars and political scientists who work on Poland all have things to say to each other and can all support each other and uh, institutionally um, and uh, and in, in in scholarly terms in in the work that we do, and that that creates this idea of Polish studies as a very capacious um, uh, notion. I, I must admit that. No, uh, though, that, that I have increasingly you know, I had some doubts about that, that vision about Polish studies. I think it works in some contexts, but I think it's also really important uh, to accept the reality of disciplinary divisions um, and the way that the institutional architecture works in at universities and the way in which our specializations work. And you as a historian in many contexts will have much more to talk about and should have much more to talk about with other historians working on other parts of Europe or other parts of the world, then you should, uh, with me as a literary scholar, for example, right? So there are contexts where I think we can that where we, we can have our uh, the a Polish studies uh, conversation, um, and there are contexts in which that uh, definition, uh, that that way of understanding a disciplinary division, makes sense. But I think there are others in which it doesn't. Um, and in which, um, you know, it's really important uh, to, to be focusing on the ways in which for you, for instance, your work on history speaks to the work of, of other historians, in, you know, more, more broadly and similarly from myself as a literary scholar, you know, I would hope that my work on, on Miwash will be of interest to a whole range of other scholars who are working on, um, on, on poetry, um, on literature and religion, on literature and the body, uh, etc. Et so so I think to hold both of those ideas together is increasingly the way I I'm I'm thinking about um, the notion of Polish studies.
1: Well the, this certainly would be my own approach as well. I'm I'm excited to hear about your your uh, new project. Obviously it, it it is an a living and breathing organism as we as we monitor uh, especially the uh shifting sands of the regions um, of the regions, well, fate hang in the balance. I don't know if it's too dramatic a way of putting it, but but your book could look entirely different six months from now to what you may have proposed. That's right. I mean,
2: Poland's Poland's situation is uh, completely different uh, from how it was when we when we first conceived the book. I mean, th- some things haven't changed. It doesn't change the uh, the basis of the success of the current Polish government. It doesn't change some of our interpretations of the way that the ways in which they uh, have wielded power, uh, but it adds an entirely new context and changes uh, potentially many of those contexts. So, you know, we do have uh, this uh, significant challenge to deal with of any project that chooses, uh, uh, you know, as it's, as it's time period, um, the present or the very recent uh, past, which is a ground that's constantly shifting from beneath our feet. So that's going to be one of the, one of the challenges of the, of the project.
1: Okay. Uh, Well, well, We will have to arrange that separate podcast on the future of Polish studies because I'm very excited by the prospect of discussing it with you. For the moment, I want to commend to our listeners uh, Stanley Bill's wonderful new book, Czesław Miłosz's Faith in the Flesh, Body, Belief and Human Identity, just out with Oxford University Press. And my guest today has been Stanley Bill, Associate Professor in Polish Studies and Director of Slavonic Studies at the University of Cambridge. Stan, thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me.